Well, this morning, I want to talk to you about discipline. When we hear that word discipline, there are perhaps various images, various pursuits or goals that come to mind. I think the most common when we hear about discipline would be athletics. For the Christian, maybe there are particular areas of discipline in your life that you are trying to pursue. Read the Bible more, pray more, things like that. And perhaps even as you think of the concept of discipline, you can relate to the individual who perhaps all of his life has been struggling with their weight, how they look, and with the rise of gyms and all of these different diets and all of their friends losing weight, they think, maybe now, now is the time that I can start disciplining myself in the gym with what I eat, how I sleep so that I can finally look the way I want to look. Perhaps you can relate to the person who couldn't care less about how they look, couldn't care less about your weight, until you get that voicemail just two days after your latest doctor's visit, which says, this is your doctor, I got your lab work back, call me right away. And suddenly, there is a need or desire for discipline to make that right. And perhaps more specifically for us this morning, I think many of us can relate to the individual who is a believer, who loves God, who knows they have the Holy Spirit, who knows God is present with them, and yet feels distant, feels like something is disconnected, feels like God is not there even though they know that he is. And if they could just discipline themselves to get into the word more consistently, to pray more consistently, to be with and open up with God's people more consistently, then perhaps that feeling of being alone and left by God will go away. When we think of discipline, it is always something that involves hard work. It is always something that seems necessary, and it is always something that seems helpful or beneficial in some way. For example, you wouldn't call someone disciplined because you see how much TV they watch. You wouldn't say, man, that guy is so disciplined and binge-watching every popular series that comes out on Netflix. Nor would you drive home from a dinner party and talk to your wife and say, wow, the discipline it must have taken him to get to the point that he eats that much cake at every sitting, not a vegetable in the house. No, that's just our natural inclination to do what feels good, to do what, what we want to do, but discipline goes against that. And so as we think about all the things we want to be disciplined in, of all the things that you or anyone else can be disciplined to do, I submit to you this morning that there is only one that is worthwhile, and that is godliness. Godliness. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7b, that is the second sentence is 7 through verse 9. On the other hand, Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. 
For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. This morning I want to give you three encouragements regarding discipline, three encouragements to proper discipline. Obviously from the passage we see that the proper discipline is a pursuit of godliness, so three encouragements to proper discipline, discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness. First, the first encouragement to proper discipline, the purpose of discipline, the purpose of discipline. Again, we're starting in the middle of verse 7 of 1 Timothy chapter 4. He says, on the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And of all the pursuits, of all the goals that we can discipline ourselves for, there is none more rewarding, none more significant, and none more commanded than godliness. Paul begins with this phrase, on the other hand, contrasting what we saw previously last week. Let's review. In the first part of verse 7, he writes, have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. In the specific context, this points back to the false teachings that are being taught in Ephesus that are infiltrating the church. They were affecting Timothy's flock. Generally speaking, this can be any teaching that contradicts the gospel or the sound doctrines of Scripture. Go back yet another verse. Verse 6, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. In that verse, 4.6, Paul is telling Timothy that, Timothy, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ by pointing out God's truth to God's people. He then, and this is very interesting, <clears throat> he then transitions to Timothy's own life and own personal walk with the Lord, which connects then to our passage this morning in which he is talking about Timothy's personal discipline for the purpose of godliness. And so this is a great reminder that even in the midst of what is essentially a training manual for pastors, 1 Timothy, we find instruction not just on how to teach and shepherd, but we find the key to teaching and shepherding and all of the Christian life, which is one's personal godliness. And in reading Paul's epistles, you find that he often uses the metaphor of physical training and exercise for the Christian life. You could say it is one of his favorite metaphors. Of this, the idea of training or discipline it would not be a foreign concept to Timothy and his church. You are, most of you are aware that our modern Olympic Games every two years now, or more specifically the Summer Games every four years, originated in the ancient Greek world. And just as you have weekly competitions in every sport today, back then there would be athletic games in almost every city that people would attend on a regular basis. Now, with your particular favorite sports season over, you may not know who played last night or Friday night. 
because there are athletic competitions going on all the time and we're just not interested in that sport or we're not aware that this particular college is doing well in this activity. But back then, understand that there was a lot less to do. There were not exorbitant ticket prices. There were not many forms of entertainment. Theater would be the other major one. And so people would go, even if they weren't particularly interested, it was the thing to do. And so the whole town would fill whatever theater or amphitheater or gymnasium that they had and watch the modern athletic games of the week. This eventually led to the spread of gymnasiums, which could be found in every ancient Greek city, and youths spent most of their late teenage years from the ages of 16 to 18 in the gym. You got to understand, though, that this would be different than our modern gyms, where people are lifting weights or running on treadmills. This would, again, be like the Olympic Games. They would be running. They would be wrestling. They would be throwing. They would be jumping, developing their skills in what we see today in the core events of the Summer Olympics. In fact, I can't help but think if you took an ancient Greek youth and said, this is our modern gym, they would either be disgusted or find it quite laughable that people are just standing there lifting the same weights over and over, and companies have spent millions of dollars developing a device so that you can run in place. They were running for real. They were wrestling. These were Olympic events. All that to say, the idea of physical discipline was ingrained in their culture. These games, these events were part and parcel, along with theater, was part of their culture. It was what you would do for entertainment. In fact, <clears throat> the word discipline that Paul uses is the same Greek word from which we get the English words gymnasium and gymnastics. And the word means to train or to exercise. And it refers to the rigorous, self-sacrificial training that an athlete puts himself through. And so you see the importance in understanding their gymnasium versus our gymnasium, where you may have a membership, you can decide not to go, you can't do it because all of the weights are being used, where there, they're running. They're trying to make time. They're trying to beat this guy in wrestling, whatever it is. And so there's an intense discipline there, just like a modern athlete would have. And you can see then why Paul likes so much to use this word in the context of the spiritual life. In the context of discipline, there are similarities and differences between physical discipline, what he will call in the next verse bodily discipline, and spiritual discipline. Here are some similarities. They both involve self-sacrifice, hard work, and dedication. Both physical and spiritual discipline are strenuous. When done right, they are both difficult. And this is key. They both require you to push yourself beyond complacency and comfort. 
both have a personal goal that is on a sliding scale that results in a pursuit of excellence and perfection such that when you hit your particular milestone, you don't stop there, you keep going. If you've ever uh, run, run track, track, you know the idea of a personal best. And no coach will say, this is your personal best. This is the fastest you have run the 100 meter. No more, you're good. Even if he's the fastest in the world, he will be pushed to shave off half a second, a second, two seconds off of that time. And it's the same thing with the spiritual life. You may say, this is a sin I want to conquer. This is a sin I want to deal with. And when you deal with that, you don't just stop and say, I'm good. I've arrived. You've put off. Now strive to put on. And when you put on, put on better. Put on with love. What's the next sin? How can you excel still more, in Paul's words, in your physical and spiritual discipline? <clears throat> Both involve med- mental fortitude as well as control over your physical body. But here are some differences. Spiritual discipline, although it involves mastery of the body, does not necessarily result in a healthier body. Whereas the mind and body are involved in both types of discipline, there is a distinction. Physical discipline primarily involves your body and the mind needs to be controlled to keep you from quitting and to push you forward. Spiritual discipline primarily involves your mind And the body needs to be controlled to keep you from sinning and to push you forward. And when you put these two types of discipline, physical and spiritual, side by side, you see that the ultimate factor that makes them different is the goal or purpose. Whereas physical discipline can have various goals depending on the person, lose weight, win a competition, lower cholesterol, live longer, work harder, keep up with the kids. The goal of spiritual discipline is always the same. Godliness. Godliness. The self-sacrificial, strenuous, leap-out-of-your-comfort-zone pursuit of God's glory through the fulfillment of His purposes. The discipline for the purpose of godliness is the kind of exercise and activity that promotes godly character and righteous obedience rather than a fit body. It is the pursuit of a right attitude and a right response toward God. And to be clear, this is not the asceticism that the false teachers were demanding. In fact, Paul probably wrote this to address the false teaching of asceticism that we saw a few weeks ago. This is also not the pursuit of your own self-worth found through moral and religious perfection externally. This is the discipline to get yourself to pursue God's purposes fully and unhindered. Let's look at Paul's own example in 1 Corinthians 9, 23-27, again, using the illustration of physical athleticism. 1 Corinthians 9, 23-27. Paul writes, I do all things for the sake of the gospel 
so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Verse 24, we're in 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. And so we do see that it is the body, the flesh that is the one that drives us and, and fleshes out, no pun intended, our sin. And so we do need to discipline our eyes, what we look at, what we do with our fists when we're angry. All of this works together. But again, he's using this metaphor to say this is hard work. This is not just saying, yes, we're all in a marathon race, let's jog together, it's okay. Run as if you want to win. Box as if you want to win. Have a goal, have an aim. And on the most fundamental level, godliness will not occur without the basics. Prayer, the study of God's Word, and biblical fellowship. So we must first and foremost discipline ourselves to those things. From there, we must discipline our minds so that we have a deep appreciation of the character of God. That is who He is and what He has done for us because of who He is. This involves greater study. This involves greater prayer. It is circular. As you grow deeper in your appreciation of who God is, the overwhelming grace and mercy you have received to bring you to your knees in humility, you then strive to know Him more, to serve Him more, to pray and study the Word more. This all will include and naturally come out in obedience in your behavior. This, of course, involves studying theology as well. But I must warn you, the study of theology and doctrine before having a reverential attitude toward God can be damning. Develop an appreciation for who God is, for your salvation, for the gospel, through reading the word and prayer first, and then in your desire to know him more, to represent him better, to give a defense for your faith delve deeper. I mean, you can picture the typical seminary student. The discipline that it takes to get the work done on time. Early mornings, late nights, hundreds of pages of written work, thousands of pages of reading, not to mention the ministry, work, and family responsibilities that most seminarians also have on their plate. Understand that myself, when I was in seminary, some of our friends who have gone to seminary from this church who are there now are unique in that they are single. Most seminary students have families to feed, have secular jobs to feed those families. They have mortgages. They have bills. It is hard work. 
It takes great discipline. But all of it is absolutely useless. All of it is for naught. All of it is, in fact, hypocritical if there is no personal discipline for godliness. Now take that picture into the life of your average Christian. All of us want to serve. All of us want to know the Word more deeply. All of us want to evangelize more often. Not to mention, again, the work and family responsibilities that we all have. It can be easy to discipline ourselves to study more, to outreach more, to attend more. And the danger in all of this is that we neglect the discipline for our own personal holiness. But there is a greater danger. It is the danger of disciplining ourselves for all of these things externally and convincing ourselves that that equals godliness, a practice we know as legalism. To be sure, our commitment to essentials such as fellowship, Bible study, and evangelism can be part of our discipline for godliness. But we cannot do so at the expense of the core fabric of godliness, self-evaluation, repentance, worship, gratitude. Discipline yourself to these things first, and all else will be pursued with the proper mindset, the heart of worship, and the right attitude. So, begin with prayer and the study of God's Word. Then the application of God's Word to your own life through the mortification of fleshly lusts and repentance, this will develop into a love for God and subsequently a love for others, the two defining characteristics of Christianity, and then extend outward toward service and greater study of God's Word. And when we look at the high calling and the noble results of this kind of spiritual discipline, another key difference between physical and spiritual discipline emerges. Physical discipline, no matter how lofty your goals may be, if you are disciplined enough, can be achieved in your own strength. Spiritual discipline cannot. It is only by God's strength that we can discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness, let alone even have the desire for such a pursuit. It's not that we neglect our own part in it. It is a command, after all, right here that calls for our personal effort. But we must not forget to trust God, then thank God. And when you're done doing that, trust God, then thank God again, over and over. For what? From the sacrifice of Christ and the Holy Spirit allowing you to accept the gospel message to your day-by-day, today, ongoing conviction and sanctification. Listen to Philippians 2, 12-13. Just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, But now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. It's one of the wonderful mysteries of the Christian life. You better do it because God's doing it in you. And that last phrase of Philippians 2.13 is key, isn't it? For His 
good pleasure. When we seek our own pleasure, we will be obsessed with the temporary. When we seek God's pleasure, we are consumed with the eternal. And that brings up a question that remains, where does physical or bodily discipline come in? What part does it play in the Christian's life? This leads us to our second encouragement to proper discipline, the profit of discipline. The profit. Verse 8, for bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. I think we can all agree that most bodily discipline in our culture is self-centered. The goal is some variety of self or self-exaltation. I've mentioned some already. To look good, to feel good, to be attractive to the opposite sex, an outlet for personal stress, to live longer, to have more energy. And when that physical discipline is not selfish and is pursued for the Lord or for the service of others, it is profitable but only a little. It may be that you need to work out more to have more energy to serve your family and your church, to be able to keep up with your kids or grandkids, or to be able to attend more opportunities for fellowship. It is a noble thing to desire to remain physically attractive to your spouse or to have an outlet for your stress so that you don't go home and yell at the kids. But in comparison to spiritual discipline and godliness, physical discipline is of only a little profit. Paul calls it bodily discipline, literally bodily training, and this is again talking about athletics. We're all very aware of the benefits of being in shape. Even the benefits of not being in shape, but in better shape than you were a year ago. We exercise, we try to eat right, we take our vitamins, and even if we don't, because of our culture, we recognize that we are choosing an unhealthier lifestyle. We know, we understand. All that to say, bodily discipline is one of the most common themes in our culture, yet Paul says it has little profit. The reason is not because he does not value physical life and energy. It is because he holds greater value on eternal life. And we don't get this from the English, but the word little, little value, little profit in Greek is not just small. It means numerically small and lasting for only a short time. Namely, while we are here on earth in these physical bodies before glory. On the other hand, he says godliness is profitable for all things. In other words, not just the physical body, but also the spirit and the soul. And one of the main points that he brings out is that the soul is eternal. Please understand that this is not just some trite way for Paul to remind us of heaven. This is a very real and practical challenge to evaluate what you spend your time on during your years on earth. Are you going to waste time on something that is already limited in its existence or focus your time enriching something that will last for eternity? As the daughter of a 
member of the U.S. Olympic wrestling team in 1932, a woman most of you are familiar with. If you're not, you should become familiar with her. Johnny Erickson Tata grew up very athletic. Her favorites were horseback riding, tennis, hiking, and swimming. Those were her passions. At just 17 years old, as she had done many times before, she dove into the infamous Chesapeake Bay on the East Coast, fractured her spine between the fourth and fifth vertebrae, and as a teenager, became a quadriplegic, meaning paralyzed from the shoulders down. Some of you are familiar with her story. Most of you are familiar with her ministry. As a quadriplegic, obviously, Johnny Erickson Tata's athletic days are over. But she is one of the godliest and most influential Christians of our generation, having ministered to millions through her Johnny and Friends International Disability Center, her radio program, and her dozens of books. She particularly ministers to Christians with disabilities, helping them with those trials, helping them to put their faith and hope in God. And here's my point. As a quadriplegic, Johnny has done more for the cause of Christ than she ever could have done as a Christian athlete. We have our favorites. We hope those on our favorite teams who are professing Christianity that their profession is real because we think that there's something noble in that, and there is. We want them to be more vocal about their faith. We want more Tim Tebow's of the world. But this woman who can only move from the neck up has changed the American and international church as a woman who cannot move. In fact, my former team leader in Albania, their family was good friends with the Tata family. She was invited to speak in Albania, and so she insisted that she stayed at my friend's home. He told me that because of how eloquent and active and joyful she is, it is not until you see her in the privacy of your home that you realize how physically helpless she is. No one says much about him, but her husband, Ken, has to do everything just for John, so Johnny can eat, get in and out of bed, or sit on the toilet. Physical discipline is of little profit. Look at verse 8 and look at the promise Paul makes. Since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come, speaking of spiritual discipline, in order to fully appreciate why bodily discipline pales in comparison to spiritual discipline, you have to fully appreciate the merits of both. No doubt there is great gain in physical discipline, but only for this life. In fact, the benefits in this life end with this life. They do not carry on to the next. However, godliness benefits both this life and the life to come. The word promise is a common word in the New Testament. Praise God for that. And in every uses except for one in Acts, the word is used of a promise from God. And by the way, of the 52 times that Greek word is used in the New Testament, half of them are used by Paul. 
It is the same promise to which Paul refers when he kicks off his second letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. Now in our text, the present life is referring to our current existence in these earthly bodies of flesh, an existence that will come to an end. James 4.14, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. We should not live our lives constantly fearing that we will die. In fact, most of us as adults, we don't think about that when we get on the freeway, when we buckle our seatbelts, whatever we do. But you start thinking about that the first time your little boy or little girl goes out with his friends downtown on their own the first time they ride their bike or their skateboard anywhere else outside of your particular block crossing the street. We don't know what will happen tomorrow. Our lives are but a vapor. That word is like on a cold winter's day, rare here, but you've all experienced it, where you breathe out and your breath is visible, and within a second it is gone. The steam coming off of your cup of coffee this morning for a second and then it is gone. Vanishes away. And that comparison and that description as a vapor truly makes sense when you compare this life, the length of it, to eternity. The life to come refers to, for believers to glory. Paul uses the word life that does not merely refer to existence, but a rich, full, and abundant type of life that is promised to those in Christ. And in this Christian context, the present life and the life to come refer to the present and future aspects of salvation, sanctification now, glorification later. Turn with me to the Gospels, the front of your New Testament, Mark chapter 10, verses 29 through 30. And we'll look at some words from Jesus Christ himself. Mark chapter 10, verses 29 through 30. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake or for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. This passage is key because there is no promise that there will be an easy life if you pursue godliness now. In fact, difficulties, broken families, and even physical harm are promised possibilities. But the life we live in pursuing righteousness will result in a God-given joy and immense blessing. And think about what you value in this life. It is hard to lend great amounts of money to someone and not expect anything in return. It can be fatal to love your enemies. It can be frustrating to be merciful. It can be physically and emotionally painful to actually let someone 
who desires your death to slap you on your other cheek. But all of those Christ-like characteristics will ultimately be honored by the Lord in this life as well as the next. Look at Luke 6, 27 through 38. Luke 6, 27 through 38. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you, the golden rule. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Verse 34. If you lend to those from who you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge and you will not be judged. And do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Pardon and you will be pardoned. Give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Are you familiar with that picture that he gives of how much blessing we will get in return. You've done this in the kitchen. You want to transfer coffee beans or sugar from the bag to your container, and there's just half a cup left. So what do you do? You press down, you shake, you make room, <clears throat> you break out the air, and then you can fit more. And when it comes to blessings in your life, no amount of pressing, no amount of shaking is going to matter because it's going to run over. It will spilleth over. When we discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. And since we all only have the same 24 hours a day to do anything, why would you waste it at the gym when you could be doing God-honoring good? Spending more time with your kids, praying, reading the Word, coming to church, blessing others. Drive the other way to the home of someone who is in need. All of these things. It's all about comparison of time and the value and worth of what we will have here versus what we will have here plus there in heaven. No employee on the Titanic no matter how proud they were of their work and the ship's beauty, spent more time, any more time on their responsibilities once they knew the ship was sinking. There was not one single chef cooking one last gourmet meal, not a single custodian shining the ship's brass railing one last time, not one engineer in the hull of the ship greasing the gears one final time. No, 
they instinctively sought to spare that which had immensely more value and exponentially more time to exist, their own lives. They didn't know if they'd survive, but they understood that their lives were more valuable than a sinking ship. And what Paul is providing us is not merely a comparison between now and the future. It is a comparison of how infinitesimally short this life is compared to eternity. Imagine me holding a rope, a white rope. I'm holding the end, and it goes to that wall. And that is the timeline of your existence. And on the end of the rope, there is a half an inch that I have colored in red. That red part is your life on earth. And that rope does not end at that wall. You just can't see the 600 pounds of coiled rope behind that wall. That is your eternity. And we want to waste it on this? It makes no sense. Are you going to spend more time preparing for the 20-minute drive to the airport than for your month-long vacation? Are you going to exert more energy for bodily discipline than discipline in the pursuit of godliness? Bodily discipline, I believe, is prioritized by Christians far too highly and far too often. Glorify God in all that you do, including physical exercise and health, absolutely. But there are few, if any, earthly pursuits that have a finer line in the Christian's life between glorifying God and glorifying self than bodily discipline. The comparison Paul is making is clear. A hundred years or a hundred trillion. Godliness holds promise for both. Bodily discipline only for the drop in a bucket. Ultimately, it is a comparison between that which can be seen, held, and counted, and that which is so great that it has no measure. And this is why he confirms the statement in verse 9. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. And here we find our final encouragement to proper discipline, the principle of discipline. Don't need to expound this. Don't need to get into the Greek. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance acceptance. And here's where we get personal and practical. Do you believe that verse 8 is true? Do you believe that bodily discipline is of little profit, whereas godliness is good for all things and holds promise for this life and the next? I, I don't mean intellectually. Even if you have never thought that before as a Christian, now you do because it's in the Bible. Intellectually, you believe it. I mean, do you believe this in such a way that it impacts your daily schedule? Your perspective when you look at your shirtless body in the mirror in your bathroom or look at the mirror in the gym? Do you believe this when you're dating? Do you believe that physical discipline is what will attract a godly spouse? 
My friends, do you really want a Christian spouse that will prioritize that? When you only find yourself with an an hour free on a hectic day, when no part of your daily routine has been met, do you head to the gym so as to not mess up your workout schedule? Or do you head home so as to not mess up your Bible reading schedule? Are you missing out on fellowship opportunities because like most gatherings, they revolve around food and that food's not allowed on your diet? Are you more prone to get to bed early to catch a flight or to be fresh for that business meeting than you are to get to bed early to get in time with the Lord? Bodily discipline is of little profit. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a joy it is to have responsibility and stewardship of these physical bodies. We understand the importance of what you have gifted us in our physical abilities, but help us to never lose sight of the fact that you have given us these abilities and our intellect, these able bodies for your glory. Help us to recognize the value of pursuing spiritual discipline for the purpose of godliness. Help us to prioritize those things. Whether it's in our mindset or our schedules, help us to see the truth. Help us to live out the truth. Help us to do all things, including what we eat, how we eat, how we exercise, all for the glory of our God and Savior. Father, if there is an imbalance in our lives, whether in priority, whether it's a fear of man, whether it's just the feeling we like, I pray that you would help us to repent. Help us to see the value of serving others, of worshiping you, of serving you and your people. Lord, help us to deal with our stress. Help us to deal with our laziness in whatever way we need for your glory whether that is working out or changing our diet or just being more disciplined with our minds. But help us to never lose sight of what all of this is for. Help us to see in each of our individual lives in what areas, whether our bodily discipline or discipline for some other aspect of our lives, hobbies, gaming, traveling, whatever it is, is cutting into and making a sacrifice, spiritual discipline, and time with you and your people. Help us to repent unto you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's